Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Formation Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Ken Shank. Uh, Ken is the Partnership Director for Campus EDU. Uh, Campus EDU is a uh, creative new platform that uh, provides courses fully accredited through partnership colleges. And uh, Ken is a a key player in that uh, new endeavor. So you can check him out at campcdu.com. Or if you want to see his scholarly work as a New Testament scholar, he writes uh, both uh, sort of for academic audiences as well as has a number of general audience books. Just uh, search him on Amazon and you'll find a whole host of uh, works by Ken. He's no stranger to the show, a regular here, one of the earliest guests on the show back when we first started many years ago now. So I'm so glad to have him on for this second Sunday of the Easter season. And our text this week is Psalm 150, Psalm 150. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass the show on to others so they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show, uh, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Ken. Yeah, we're looking at Psalm 150. Uh, Would you be willing to read the passage? Sure. I have the new Revised Standard Version up here on Bible Gateway. Great. Go for it. Although we could could go from the Hebrew. Hallelujah. Anyway, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his surpassing greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with clanging cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for all that you are, all that you have done all that you will do, and all that you will be. And so we join with this psalm in saying, praise, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And so, Father, we ask now that as we talk through this text, explore it, and enter into this season, this season of praise, this season of celebration, that, Lord, you'd open our lips that our mouth may proclaim your praise, that you would open our minds uh, to see what you wish us to see and our hearts to hear uh, your word, your word for us now in this time, in this place. Father, I ask that as Ken and I are guided by your spirit, that the same would be true for all those listening in, that if they are listening for their own edification and or preparing to teach others 
whatever it is, Lord, that's drawn them to this episode, I ask, Lord, that you would be at work by your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's let's start right with that very first word, hallelujah. So I know that I can't remember how far back it goes, but these last few Psalms starting, I don't know, 140, I'm trying to think the last 146, yeah, 46, 7, 8, 9, and 10, or 50. So five or five or so Psalms here at the end. I think they're even called something in the in the Jewish tradition, like the Lesser Hallel or something like that. Is that sounding? I'm not remembering, but I wouldn't be surprised. Two Hallels. There's another section with a bunch of Hallelujahs just a little bit before uh, uh, one nineteen. There's a, a few in the teens that are like I think they're that's the Great Hallel, and this is the the Little Hallel. Little brother. Yeah. Uh, so, what does that word mean? I actually don't. I know it's always translated. If it's translated, it's translated praise the Lord or praise ye the Lord in the King James. Yeah. I keep I keep thinking of the, you know, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise anyway. ye. I, when I was a kid, I thought it was praise ye the Lord, ye. I, I didn't know what the word was. <laughs> <laughs> praise ye the Lord. Yeah, that's a different God. So. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, hallelujah, hallelujah, ale, Hallelujah, hallelujah, who? A tongue twister. So, halle. Hallelujah is imperative. Is that a phrase. verb? Yes, halal, as you were saying, halal. Um, and then yah is a shortened form of Yahweh. And is yah, well, I'll just pause right there. Is, is yah a short form of Yahweh or is it, or is it an older word? I don't know. I'm just, is it just assumed that that's a kind of shorthand? I just think of El and Elohim, right? Yeah. So you have a parallel in the name God. Yeah. Although, again, I am a complete amateur uh, when it comes to the Psalms. But my good or bad instincts, I'll let experts tell me. My instincts tell me that these, uh, again, maybe this is completely wrong, that these Psalms were probably added canonically to end the entire Psalms corpus, which suggests to me that they are the latest of the Psalms, which suggests to me that this is a very late Psalm indeed, uh, which suggests to me that Yah is not a, if, if it is an early form, it's an archaism. You know what I'm saying? Again, maybe, I know exactly maybe, what you're saying. Yeah. So my whole line of thought there makes no sense whatsoever, but, but well, um, no, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. So, I mean, the parallel would be for listeners, they might be familiar with the phrase like El Shaddai. Because that sometimes gets left untranslated. There's even songs when we were when we were younger. There was El Shaddai, right? <laughs> uh, and so that's El God. And I actually forget what Shaddai. Which is that Almighty? The, maybe I mean it's debated, yeah, but it, it it seems to be a, and it appears like in the Melchizedek story. It has a kind of El Elyon. Yeah, you wonder if this is a. Oh, that's a different one. El Elyon. Okay. God Most High. Yeah. So you have these these other names for God that it was part of what I was asking is like, they might have their own back history. I assume it's a very long history. Yeah. Because uh, Yah is, is um, it's the end of names like Adonai Jah, Adonai Yah. That's Yah ah. at the end of, uh, whenever you see Abijah, Elijah, that's, I think Yahweh in the final syllable, 
God is my father, Eliyah. Yahweh is my father. Or God I is, see. Sorry, Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is my God. The Elijah. Yeah, the uh, Abiyah, right, would be father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Abijah or Yah. Okay. Yeah. So there's clearly a long history of this as a kind of shorthand. Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So the King James then with the praise ye, that was the kind of plural. Yeah, it's a second person flow imperative. Y'all praise Yah. Which we say English doesn't have, but actually it used to. It was ye, yeah. right? Yeah. Y-E yeah. was the plural, second plural command. I don't know. It's not worth it, but that was one small advantage of the King James is that you could tell the difference between the ye and the thou with the thou being the singular. Oh, man. You just like had a sentence that I say all the time. I just never put it that I, I've like, I'll always say one advantage of the King James, but it always begins or ends with, but it's not worth it. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not worth the cost, but it would be, we would be lying as, as lovers of language, both ancient and modern language to deny that there are costs and benefits to every translation. And that would be, I would put that in the benefit column for sure. Thou shalt not kill John Drury, uh, but ye are the salt of the earth church. You know. Right, right. Oh, that's so great. That's a good memory. So praise ye the Lord. So it's an imperative, yep. which is funny because it's it's come to be in English a stock phrase. When someone says, oh, praise the Lord, they often know we're not thinking of it as an imperative. We're not telling somebody else yeah. to praise. It's not a call to worship. It might be, but it's not the the conscious intent is usually I'm doing it. I'm I'm praising the Lord right now. And I'm wondering even now as we're talking is there an extent to which this had already become a little bit stock, even by the late Salter? I don't know. Just because it appears, you know, so much, it, it almost has a little bit of a, it wouldn't have to be a full bore, like imperative. We are now calling you to worship. It, it could be uh, just the thing you say. You know? Although the second line, you know, praise ale, praise God. There it is. In his sanctuary. Um, so it is a command there pretty clearly, I think. Yeah. After the, well, I guess in some ways it's like by, by switching from hallelujah, which again is one word in most English translations, but by the way, I should correct myself. What's that? Because it's hall, hallelu. There's no le really there in the pronunciation. It's hallelu. Just for any any Hebrew Hebrew <laughs> files out there, it's a well, a, it's a uh, silent schwa, not a vocal schwa. Anyway, no, no, I'm glad you mentioned it because it's not a it's not a normal e that's hiding there. Although for English, that's very difficult to yeah, because it's not the, uh, it's not halu. It doesn't it it is a there's a pause right halu right, and that is really hard for English speakers. So. Throwing in a kind of, you know, dead E in the middle is not the worst thing in the world. But yeah, the uh, the the kind of separation of those two, it's kind of almost become like a word. Like, you know how it's like Jesus Christ, it almost becomes like a, yeah. like a boy, we're, 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 ris- we're risking the, the, breaking the third commandment in this opening segment. Uh, sorry, just <laughs> <laughs> using the Lord's name in, in vain. It's not in vain. It's for teaching, but uh, how Christ almost we it can just roll off the tongue like it's this last name yeah but then you know when you pause and actually say jesus is the christ it like reminds you that 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 it's a title 
And in some ways that's happening here and for us, at least modern readers, but maybe this would have been true even in, in earlier centuries when to say hallelujah, then the next line is hallelujah. It like right there, that's not a stock phrase. That's now a command. That's clearly a call to worship. And then it helps to almost highlight the imperative call to worship character of this phrase, hallelujah, which is almost stock in these last five, five or six Psalms. So talk to me about if you're willing, I mean, we're just getting into the words. I love it. So sanctuary. So this is, uh, what is this? Kadosh. Okay. So is that tent or is that like uh sort of holy place? Yeah. That's the word for holy, right? Uh, I think it's a Kodesh. Okay. Yes. The, the, the place holy. Well, it could be holy ground, holy uh, assembly. I mean, it's excuse. It's an adjective actually a lot. No, it's a noun. It's a noun. So actually sanctuary is an interesting choice. Although no, it's hiding in there. Yeah. It's sanct, sanctified. So it's, it's yeah. hiding in that English word sanctuary. Yes. Sanct. Yeah. Okay. How did I miss that, man? Yeah. So it's B in, uh, and then the O at the end is, um, his, and then Kodesh in the middle, a holy, holy place. So then that's placed into parallel with the, I can't pronounce this stuff. So I'm so glad you're here. What is it? Ra- Raki. Uh, yeah. the word Berkia. is Rakia. What's that? Yeah, the word is Rakia. It's a uh, Berkia, uh, which is the word used in Genesis one for the dome where g- the sky, you know, is. So that's um, where my mind was going. I wanted to check. Okay, that's great. Which so, I assume is where where the heavenly angels and so forth. You know, uh, that's my, my the first way it takes me that all the heavenly beings praise him in in the skies is where my mind is going at least with that. So here's this ancient idea that's embedded in the Psalms and shows up in New Testament passages, but in a, in a very stark way in the book of Revelation for modern Christians, but also is this recurring idea in Christian theology of this kind of parallelism where there's this like worship going on. Yeah. It's part of why we tend to think yeah. when we talk about heaven, we think of it as a place where there's worship, although in theory, other things could be going on there. It's just, it's more, it's, it's less that heaven is characterized by worship. Maybe it is. I just want to pause and suggest it might be more that when we worship on earth, there's a corresponding worship happening in heaven, whether that means like that's the only thing that happens in heaven is, is another matter, but. Yeah. That's in fact, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, dead sea scroll. You may know called the songs of the Sabbath sacrifice. I had no um, idea. No, that um, Tell us about they, it. <laughs> basically. It's it's a Dead Sea community. Well, you know, there's debate about those things. But anyway, it seems to be an Essene document that suggests that while Israel is worshiping on earth, the angels are worshiping in heaven. Uh, that parallelism between heavenly worship and and earthly worship. I mean, so when he says praise God in his sanctuary, is it talking about the physical sanctuary on earth or is it talking about the heavens as the sanctuary of God? Um, my guess is is that double maybe meaning <laughs> one leads to the other, but well, um, and couldn't it? Could you have a double doubling here then? Because you could say that again, this is imposing too much theological structure on the text. But oh well, have we met? Uh, that's what I do. Uh, but <laughs> y- you have both the visible created order, as it were, 
and then the invisible created order. Um, cause even heaven is creation. It's not the creator, right? Then you can have a doubling in both cases. So in terms of the, uh, invisible creation of God, the heavens, the created home of God, you would have both his sanctuary, his actual throne room, as it were, that's seen in Isaiah six, right? But then the entire expanse beyond that. And then on earth, you get this, also you get a doubling. You have the sanctuary is this very specific address on Mount Zion, but also all of the skies, the visible skies. I'm thinking the heavens declare the glory of God as it were, right? Sure. So you, you get actually a double either way. Either way you, you interpret the sanctuary, you get kind of a doubling, you know? Yeah. Kind of close in a narrow space and a kind of broad. So it's both kind of up and down and narrow and wide are the kind of two factors on which the praise is being located. How far back are the Psalms of Ascent? Are they in the 30s, 130s? Yeah, they start at 120 immediately after the great 119. And then they run through about 34-ish. Okay. So I'm just, I mean, we're, we're a little bit distant from them, you know, about 20 Psalms away. But I mean, you know, I was picturing Israel outside the temple singing this, but. Well, no, I, I don't think it's random because on a number of points, one, this would still be all book five, as it were. And furthermore, the first Psalm to be given the inscription, it's the only inscription on most of these Hallels. They're not given any time frame or in other information. The first Hallelujah Psalm in this book then, I mean, there were, like I said, there were earlier ones back in the teens, is Psalm 135 immediately after the Song of Ascents. So it's possible to interpret all of 35 through 50 as the beginnings of a hallelujah. And what's interesting is you have a lot of, quote, obviously later Psalms, right? You have 137, which is clearly a sure an ex, a exile story. You have 139 that clearly has a much more developed concept of omnipresence than you're used to seeing in ancient, sure. more, more ancient texts, right? So you, so you definitely have a lot of, and there's lots of temple stuff. A lot of the, a lot of the David stuff is connected to his promise to build a tabernacle or a temple, excuse me. So even the David Psalms are very temple directed. So I, I feel like, I feel like in some sense, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I mean, again, we're, we're commenting on the final form of the, sure. the canon of the Psalms, but I feel like that's more relevant the later you get in the Psalter, because at this point you can kind of tell, okay, they're, they're crafting a, a, a book with, yeah. with chapters. Yeah. And, this is not just a one-off Psalm. Right. Whereas in the first, I don't know, 70 or so, the first two books of the Psalms up through about 71, 72, you can really feel that this is a collection you yeah. know, this is a collection of, of classic hits, not an out. Al- this is a greatest <laughs> hits, not an album, right? Whereas, like, man, by the last, by the last, you know, the praise album, yeah. right? You're, this is an album now. This is clearly like some of these have even perhaps been shaped by even the final form of the song might be being shaped by its location in the canon. Yeah, absolutely, that would be. And I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking way too confidently. If you call yourself, I don't know what you, you called it. You said, a, a what did you say? Beginner or amateur? Well, if you're an amateur, I'm a dilettante. <laughs> I'm just nope. faking it. 
but it makes some intuitive sense just of the the canon as it appears as a as a piece of literature you know so that even if we don't picture some sort of historical fact of when and where these are being praised the canonical form is really straightforward i mean you've got psalm 119 that's all about the law in everyday life day and night seven times a day this is clearly not the temple this is everyday life and then the psalms of ascent kind of bring you up on the journey into the temple. And then in the last portion of the Psalter is then all now you're in the temple yeah. praising. So I, I think there's a clear progression, at least from 119 through to 150. And I love that we're going there because this is a short Psalm. So it's fun that we're like talking about the whole shape of the <laughs> last part of the Psalter, but shocker. Of course you and I would do that, but yeah. And it's a, it's a lovely, I mean, it has a nice inclusio, the first verse and the last verse, you know, ends ends on the same you know, hallelujah or hallelujah. And there you get a double. Yeah. So it has the hollow. <laughs> How do you say that without a E? Yeah. Hallelujah. Okay. And the one um, right before is uh, to So what is that? Is that just a different form? Well, it's, uh, it's adjustive, I think. Ah, uh, so it's let, let, let the breathing thing. Yes. Um, Praise Yah. Let the thing that breathes. That's exactly what I want to talk about when we get back from the break. That's great. So you got the, that inclusio brings us to that. So you get a double praise Yah and praise Yah at the end that kind of parallels the praise Yah and the praise El at the top. That's great. Let's take a quick break there and come back and explore this some more, starting with verse six. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, uh, Ken Shank, and we're looking at Psalm 150. I'll read it again so it's in our ears. This is from Robert Alter, whose Psalter I've been using this year as we've been going through these texts. So here goes. Hallelujah. Praise God in his holy place. Praise him in the vault of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him as befits his abounding greatness. Praise him with the ram's horn's blast. Praise him with the lute and the lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dance. Praise him with strings and flute. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with crashing cymbals. Let all that has breath Praise Yah. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, so let's let's pick up from the end. And then if we want to, I mean, the opening verse we already talked about, and that was kind of location-based. And then the second verse is more kind of God's, you know, attributes of God, both action and, and mode of being. And then from three... Through five, it's all instruments. So we can come back to that if we want, but let's just bracket that for a moment and pick it up from six, since you did mention the inclusio at the end. And for listeners who are new to some of our lingo, inclusio is just this old, it's just a technical term for something that happens at the end that kind of matches something at the beginning that kind of sets it apart. Yeah, like bookends. Yes, bookends, exactly. So all that has breath, can we talk about that? word a little bit because i find it a little bit interesting 
the phrase. Yeah. It's not the the other word breath that's translated spirit, right? The right. ruach. Right. It's not that. I was hoping that when I opened it today, I was like, ooh, is this going to be? Nope. Yeah. It's not that. And it's uh, not the nefesh either. It's not soul. Right. It's not that. So what what is this term indicating as far as you know? Yeah. Um, I've not done a word study on Let's it. Let's do one right now. Live word study. I mean, I can see that Genesis 7.22 actually. Already, has- actually, already Genesis 2.7, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Right. Uh, Neshamat. Yeah. Kayim. And then the, what I was pointing out in 7.22 is the breath of, of the spirit of life. Wow. Um, so it is the Nishma Ruach uh, Kayim. So anyway, you can have a breath of the spirit. That's during the uh, flood, right? Yes. Yeah. And there it's a, it's a everything as well. Everything that has breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils. So it's, it's being used in a parallel way. Whereas Genesis two is zooming in on some special status of Adam in Genesis seven. It's a reference to everything, everything that has life. Yeah. So all breathing animals, right? Yeah. Uh, the whole creation, the heavens declare the glory of God and, and everything else too. Well, um, Deuteronomy 20 is the third, is only 28 usages. We don't, we're not literally going to do all of them, but I, a little mini word study here. Just show people how to do it. It's so easy. If you've never done a Bible uh, word study, listeners, just go to Bible Hub or do you use Blue Letter Bible? Can instead uh, when I do when I do a formal one I do Blue Letter Bible right now I'm in Bible Hub okay and so you just click on the the number and off to the right there you've got you've got all the references yeah so it's like the one from Deuteronomy 20 is talking about oh when they go into the cities and there and it's a it's everything yeah and it's an all it's another all though all that breathes you won't leave alive so there it's it's got the and it is talking about animals, not just people, right? Yeah, and Joshua 10 as well, and 11. Same thing, Second Samuel 22. Okay, there you get a helpful parallel to the possibility that this has a – because this has a blast of the breath. At the rebuke of the Lord, the blast of his nostrils, Second Samuel 22. So it's much more of the specific exhaling, would you say? In that verse, at least, it seems to be that. Don't leave any persons alive, 1 Corinthians. Uh, excuse me, 1 Kings 15 and 1 Kings 17, both are like war sequences, battle stories, where nobody was left alive, breathing. Then you get breath of God in Job. Oh, man, it's used in Job a ton. Breath of the Almighty. And sometimes in a kind of parallel way, often with Ruach. So... So there, there's and then Isaiah synonymous a little bit, not entirely distinct. Yeah, they, they can they can be placed next to each other. Interesting, interesting. So yeah, it's every living thing would maybe be one possible translation. But I think the breath is relevant because although this isn't the word nefesh throat, it does fit. It's the sense that because when you combine a word with breath, you get speech. You get yeah. Uh, so it's, I assume it's linked to singing in some way that sure. this is an image for singing. 
but it's also trying to be total, which goes back to that opening. It, it could be, hey, everybody here in this temple start singing, or it could mean every single living thing everywhere under the vault of heaven. Yeah, the trees will clap their hands, the yes, rocks yes. will cry out. I think it has that double meaning, which is interesting because you were talking about, I mean, in terms of the poetry of the psalm, which is worth commenting on, it's couplet, 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 and then a single. This first six doesn't have a parallel line. It's just a single line, which is actually pretty striking, especially, I mean, especially in the Psalms, which almost always double things, you know? So when it chooses not to, it really stands out. Oh, and it's a shift. It's a shift from the imperative to the jussive that you mentioned already, right? Yeah. Although, I mean, a jussive is basically a, a third person imperative, but but it's it ends up being structurally different. So every single line of the psalm, which is really obvious in Hebrew, you know, it starts with this hale. Hallu. Whereas when you get to six, it doesn't. It starts with the word all that has breath, let them praise. So it yeah. does it does create a from a poetic I, I agree that semantically it's the same. But yeah, in terms of the rhythms of the the poetry of the psalm, it actually does it's a it's a it's, it's like a shift. it slows down. Exactly. Yeah. Instead of da 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 it's da 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 da. I mean, it's just like it it's like a climax, maybe. Yeah, it is a finale. And then kind of makes sense why you'd kind of build all the I mean, I don't know how I mean, of course, our knowledge of ancient music is next to zero because there wasn't anyone walking around with recorders. But I know from just how music works in most cultures, often the instruments start first and then the voices kick in, right? So it it is, it does really work in that regard, you know? So you've got the place of praise, verse one, you've got the object of praise, verse two. Uh Uh-oh, I'm writing a sermon. You have the instruments of praise, (laughs) three through five, right? And then six is when it all comes together as the voices begin, you know, to sing. Gosh, this psalm's really cool. <laughs> it is. It's so short. I've never really given it like a close read the way we're doing, you know. That it moves from God to our response to some extent. You know, there you've got God in his dome, you've got God in his sanctuary, you've got God's mighty deeds, and then cue response. Or would you not see it that way? I mean, it I, I don't object to that in principle. The only counter pressure I'd say, so I'm not rejecting that because I I think that is exactly what's going on. The only counter pressure is that the call to worship is there from verse one, right? So it's still, in a sense, the whole Psalm is response, right? Uh, Yeah, sure. It's all in response mode as all the Hallels are to some extent. Although some know, I mean, some in terms of, if you're talking about like, as you push earlier, you get more narrative type Psalms where you're talking about the stuff God did. Right. Um, whereas now, here we yeah, don't get much narrative. So that's not the way to that's not the way to put it. I'm trying to think. How do you describe what we're praising him for? I mean, we're praising him for who he is and what he's done in the first two verses, and then we switch to how how we're going to praise him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think verse two. I would separate to some extent one and two because, in some sense, verse. You tell me, push back on this if you want. Verse one, 
is sort of locating God where he is, but it's also locating the worshipers. It's saying those who are in these places should praise him, right? Also. So I think it's it's the meeting of God and the people. Whereas two is very specific about what we're what we're worshiping God for, right? Right. Not to be too precise, but I mean verse one is where we're what we're worshiping God in, kind of where he is, where we are. Whereas two is more identifying mighty acts and abounding greatness, which I'm not sure how much, what the difference between those would be, if any. Right. His Gabor, the Gabor stuff he's done. (laughs) And then the Gadol. Oh man, that's got nice uh, poetic quality to it, right? There's some alliterative. Yeah. Well, of course, Gabor Gabor is is buried in a bunch of, uh, other letters that have crashed into it from the front and the end, but, but you'd still hear it, right? I mean, it's hallelujah, hallelujah, big burato, halluhu, kerob, gudlo. So you, you hear the G's at least. I, yeah. that, my pronunciation's so embarrassing. If if, La, <laughs> if Larissa's listening to this, she's just like smacking her forehead, like, oh, John, don't even try. <laughs> you know, I, you know, after you know, decades of, of dabbling in Hebrew, right? It's still difficult. And in fact, um, I've been listening to um, a software called Biblingo and they have a, um, a, uh, an actual Jewish person pronouncing the Hebrew. And it's just so much better than anything I can come up with. All right. Uh, Biblingo sponsor the show. No, just, <laughs> just got a little ad there, right? So, Anything you want to say about any of these instruments? There might not be anything interesting there, but I thought I'd give you the floor before we move on. I mean, I'm glad you read Robert Alter's translation because, you know, I, I, I know a trumpet is not the same as uh, a modern trumpet. <laughs> what did he have there for verse three? Yeah, verse three, he went with ram's horns blast. Ram's horn, yeah. Which does um, link it up to, we. those show up enough in scripture that you could confirm that. Shofar, Yeah. Yeah, it's shofar. I mean, that's that's not a completely unknown yeah, thing. Yeah, praising with the sound of the shofar. Yeah. That is a little cooler. You know? Yeah, better than trumpet. Praising with the lute and harp. So those are both string instruments, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, timbrel and dance. So we're now allowed to dance as Wesleyans. So yes, yay. Yeah. Yeah, and that's but that fits. That's both ri- those are rhythmic things, right? The the tambourine and the yeah. dancing to the drum that that implies a drum that's in play, right? Whereas strings and flute, that that parallel. I mean, now I similar like a chiasm. It's a great parallel in four because you get the low end in music. Timbrel and dance is the rhythmic low end, Percussion. and then the strings and flute. These are your high end, your melodic instruments. And then I love verse five, because even though, I mean, you know, again, things are lost to, to history in these, in these instruments, I do know as a drummer, okay, you knew this was coming, right? That you really do have distinct kinds of, of symbols. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That produce very different sounds. And I don't think we could probably figure out the exact distinction between these two, but like, I mean... I mean, I have a case full of symbols and each one does a very different thing. You know, you have a crash and you have a ride and you have different kinds of crashes and you have hi-hats and they all have different functions to perform. Zilzil symbol, zilzil. <laughs> is that Good what night. it is? Zilzil? 
Well, the, the famous uh, drum uh, symbol company is Zildjian, ah. and it's it's Turkish. So there may actually be who knows uh, a connection, at least in terms of Semitic languages, right? So the, with symbols of loud, symbols yep. of loud and symbols of clash. Interesting. Yeah, Robert Alter's got a note. I don't know if I buy it. I'll just read it. So, in all likelihood, these are not two different percussion instruments, but two different sounds produced with the same instrument. The second louder and more penetrating than the first. I I don't buy it. I don't, I don't like that footnote. Because um, <laughs> you would, yeah, you wouldn't have every, every symbol would just be called a symbol, but you'd have different kinds. So, and every other line here, you get multiple instruments. They're not, you know what I mean? Like strings and flute aren't two names for the same thing. So, but it could be, it could be hitting it softly and hitting it loud. I don't know. Yeah. Symbols of, of Shema symbols of loud symbols of hearing. I know it's Shema. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And symbols of whatever this other one is of, of, uh, of alarm of black of war blast or whatever, but um, yeah. Of Ruah which at least phonetically sounds a little similar to Ruach, right? A different word. but It's a different word, I know, but just kind of interesting to have it there sound-wise since the, the blowing of God would be a rushing sound. Wow. You this if, was, this was, if this was a, a liturgy. It totally sounds like when you're introducing the band. All right, on bass. <laughs> now the shofar, now the lute, now the harp, now the timbrel. Dance one by the- one. One by one, they all come in. So good. And then, and then verse six works perfect. All right, now time to sing, right? Now you people, use your shofar, your, your built-in shofar. Yep. Which then sort of implies, all right, flip back to, to chapter one, and what are, what are we going to sing? Well, we're going to sing the Psalms, right? So it's like you could almost put this at the beginning of the Psalms too, you know? Although they're not all praise Psalms, but you know what I mean, in the sense of it's strangely, it's an end. But it's also a beginning. Oh, and now we're getting in, now we're getting to our sermon, aren't we? Because this is set for for this first Sunday after Easter. Maybe there's something significant to that. That this is that the end is simply a call to worship. It's simply a beginning. You certainly wonder if the uh, if the lectionary. I assume you're going by the lectionary. Yeah, the lectionary had something like that. And although I wonder why they didn't on Easter Sunday have Psalm 150. Rather, the Sunday after. Well, it might. I mean, the the lectionary for. Let's take a look, and then, well, actually, let's take a break, and then we'll start there on our final segment. Does that sound good? Sounds good. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with regular guest of the show, Ken Shank. Truly, one of my favorites to have on. I mean, you're all my favorites, but. Some are more favorite than others. So we're looking at Psalm 150. Looking like a father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you really, I really do love having you on the show though, man. It's, it's, I mean, it even got better when you, I'm going to regret saying it this way, but I was going to say it got better when you moved as if I don't like you around, but I think there's an excitement for us to see each other now that you're don't live in town, you know? And so this is our way of staying connected. So quarantined in new york yeah yeah (laughs) you know whereas you're uh when we first started out the show you were you know just down the hall so you were probably sick of me by the time we would record an episode never never why thanks 
All right, so Psalm 150, hallelujah, praise God in his holy temple, praise him in the firmament of his power, praise him for his mighty acts, praise him for his excellent greatness, praise him with the blast of the ram's horn, praise him with lyre and harp, praise him with timbrel and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with resounding cymbals, praise him with loud clanging cymbals, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, hallelujah. That was from the RSV. So, yeah, you asked a question right before the break, which is a perfect transition into some sermon starters or uh, other forms of application. So, why why not why not on Easter? Well, so I I opened up lectionary because I just kind of I don't I could care less about the lectionary. It's just a good jumping off point for structuring the show. So it's not my own idiosyncrasies shaping the content of the show. So when I build up the schedule, which would have been last like December when I started planning out the year, no, it would have been November. Church year starts in December. I would have made this decision and then I just forgot why. So it's good to look it up. So here's what's going on. So on the Easter vigil, you've got, listen to all the Psalms included in the Easter vigil. Psalm 136 selections, uh, Psalm 46, Psalm 16, uh, Psalm 42, 43, 143, 98. Psalm 114. So, I mean, it's just, there's already a bunch of Psalms to choose from. It's awesome. And then for Easter day proper, the suggested Psalm is Psalm 118, one through two and 14 through 24. And it's obvious why Uh, our regular listeners will know the connection because uh, they would have listened to last week's episode and we did it on 118. So then the lectionary for second Sunday of Easter has Psalm 118 again, or Psalm 150. So I just chose like, well, I don't want to repeat a Psalm. Although you could literally do Psalm 118 every Sunday. I mean, it's like the every Sunday of Easter and really every Sunday, because every Sunday is a little Easter or more properly, Easter is just a really big Sunday. So the relationship between Sunday and Easter and Easter season is all relevant here in the sense that 118 is a special Psalm. And so, yeah, 150 was the kind of backup for those who don't want to be repetitive, which was apparently me in this case. Um, (laughs) So if 118 has the substantive connections, which again, if you want to know how dear listener, check out that episode with Colleen Durr from last week in the feed. But in terms of the formal kind of atmospheric connection to Easter, 150 is great. Not only because it's an invitation to praise, but also because of this canonical feature that we highlighted right at the end. This it's a it's an end that's a beginning. The consummation of the of the first covenant, you know, the beginning of the new. Right. Right. And in some ways, like you said, there's what God does and then there's our response. And our response includes more than praise, but never less than praise. And I think it's important in the Easter season to not rush too quickly. This is one of the advantages of celebrating Easter as a season, not just as a day. It's to not rush too quickly to the, okay, what are we supposed to do now? Because actually there's very little moral instruction that is implied at first with Easter. Like you almost don't get, like in some ways, Pentecost is supposed to kick that part in. Okay, now you go and do stuff, right? Right. In some sense, Easter's supposed to just be dumbfounded that God did this. And that's the kind of first response is like a kind of, again, a kind of, yeah, an awe 
and then a praise. And actually, maybe that's one of the reasons why this fits really good with the other texts often associated with the second Sunday after Easter, which you already mentioned before we started recording. What, what's, what's usually the, uh, you know, pop, pop so quiz. <laughs> what do we do the second week after Easter or first Sunday after Easter? And in John, of course, uh, uh, so Thomas is not there the evening of Easter and Thomas is there the Sunday following. Um, and that's when Jesus kind of uh, ribs him a little. Hey, hey you want to stick your finger in my side here, Thomas? Yeah. And then how does, how does Thomas respond, which is in many ways the crescendo from, from a certain point of view, the crescendo of the whole book of John. Yeah. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. I mean, this is our most, other than some scenes in the book of Revelation, this is the clearest instance of worshiping Jesus in the New Testament, right? Yeah. I mean, you can backload that into these scenes where people bow before Jesus or whatever, but that's proskune is something even, you just do to anybody you look up to in the ancient world. Like that's not a. And even 858, you know, before Abraham was, I am, that's a declaration. That's not a, an act of worship. Yeah. And even there, if all you had was, was 858 from John before Abraham was, let's be more precise with that before Abraham came to be, I am, it's actually a different verb, not just a different tense, right? Genomai versus um, a me which is interesting in itself, but that that's a declaration, like you said, and even that declaration interpreted perhaps through the lens of say Proverbs eight, the, the, the wisdom that was there from the beginning, even then though, that that's preexistence of some kind, but even then, if you worshiped him, it's plausible that he would say what the angel says in <laughs> uh, revelation, right? No, don't worship me. Jesus might have had that kind of response that even though I've been with him from the beginning, you still should direct your worship, not to me, but to the, to the father, or to the one true God or whatnot. So to have this moment of having Thomas say, my Lord and my God, boy, uh, and Jesus doesn't reject it. I think that's right. important, especially yeah. because whether, even if the sure. book of Revelation is a different author, it's clearly in the same soup, yeah. right? They're still kind of, op- not, I don't just mean early Christianity. I mean, there is some kind of, for lack of a better term, Johannine brand of Christianity and revelation and book of John come out of that. You, is that, would you contest that or that they have some relationship? Yeah. I don't know what the relationship is, but yeah. But there is a relationship is what I'm trying to say. Is yeah. that, or not? Yeah, would you say? Well, I mean, you'll get debate, but, but uh, okay. there's, it's it's um there's a closer relationship between the gospel of John and the book of Revelation than there is between either of them and Paul's letters. How's that? Would that be more a plausible claim? Yes. I I think we're we're there's always debate, right? I I, sh- I shouldn't I shouldn't speculate. I mean I I see them I see them again this is things that Ken shouldn't say if if he wants to keep his uh, scholarly driver's license. I think um they both probably come out of Ephesus in the late 1st century, you know, and so they're swimming. They're swimming in a in a next generation Christianity in Asia that that's post Paul. I mean, that's kind of what I would say. Okay, but. and clearly the second generation the 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 problems peculiar to the second generation are in play in both books. That's by second saying. generation. I'm not suggesting that that John isn't and Revelation aren't based on eyewitness. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, yeah, you're anyway. talking about the context in which these were handed around and the problems that were being discussed. Yeah, 
No, I think that's great. So I bring that up. Now, that sounds like an excursus for your listeners. And I know most of our regular listeners are like, yeah, we like the bunny trails. That's what we're here for. But just to bring it in terms of why this might matter for a sermon starter, if you're in a church that is intending to preach on Thomas uh, the Sunday after, linking up with Psalm 50, 150 could be really cool to really mention that these two names for God, my God and my Lord, which are yeah. the two key terms yeah. in the Psalms that sh- even structure the book of Psalms, book one, focusing on Yah, Lord, book two, focusing on El, Elohim, God. But here in the final Psalm, we get the combo, right? Yeah. Very intentionally combining those two names. Yeah. Verse one. Yeah. So I feel like there's a, again, that's not exegesis of 150. That's more exegesis of John 20, but I think you could make these, these connections that this is a moment of worship. And importantly, I would like to point out if I were preaching on this text, Jesus does not refuse the worship offered him here, which is yeah. his obligation. If as a faithful member of the body of Israel, and even if he was an angel sent from heaven, it is still his obligation. Where's that scene in, in revelation where an angel kind of refuses worship. I'm trying to remember. Chapter 19, maybe somewhere okay. in there. It's just that that's a, that's a little uh, cross-reference that would be helpful if someone ran with this idea for a sermon. It sounds very heavy-handed and theological, but I would put it very practical. We'd talk about worship and, and talk about what that looks like. But highlighting our first response to belief in Jesus is not to the, the truth, the good news of the resurrection. Our first response is not... How do we figure out how to raise other people's bodies or how do we resurrect our own bodies or how do we live a life that's worthy of the resurrection? Those are all relevant questions, but the first response is fall on your knees and say, my Lord and my God, right? It's, it's coming face to face with the, the divinity and Lordship of Jesus. You know? and, and whenever I talk about Revelation 1, which is admittedly not real often, but uh, when I talk about Revelation 1, a Jewish reader or listener to Revelation 1, they know the script. You know, here's Jesus, John falls on his face. The next thing is, Jesus is supposed to say, get up, I'm a man like you. Because that happens in Daniel, right? Isn't there a scene in Daniel like that? I think so. And and also, I think in some... some uh, non- Intertestament or, yeah, intertestamental literature. Yeah. Uh, apocalyptic literature. Um, so it's it's the refusal, refusal formula. And so it's, oh. it's like um, John falls down and cue Jesus, what? You're supposed to say something here, Jesus. Wait, he's not saying it. And so we don't necessarily notice it because we don't know these traditions. But I think you're right. And we've gotten used to worshiping a man as God. But like that's not something we should ever get used to. It's crazy. (laughs) So the fact that Jesus Jesus does not say, get up, Thomas, you know, is as you as you're saying, incredibly significant. Okay, so that's so fun enough. Heretical, blasphemous. You know, uh, that's quite literally how it was treated. I'm kind of if the resurrection's not true, I'm with Paul. These people are blasphemers. They are they are destroying the faith at its heart. This isn't just this isn't just you know people partying on the weekend. This is people fundamentally undermining the very truth of God's law. Occasionally on YouTube, I'll get somebody, maybe a, a Muslim or somebody else, who'll basically say the same thing about whatever I'm saying on YouTube as well. So, I mean, you get some Christians get accused of being 
uh, blasphemers for believing in the Trinity today as well. And like I said, if if God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, I think the the accusation sticks. Yeah. I wouldn't argue with it logically or philosophically. I would say you're spot on, but I believe that he was raised from the dead. And that's the the game changer. Wow. So these parallels are really fun. Fun so, fact, the lectionary actually has Revelation 1, 4 through 8 as the epistle lesson. Okay. Now, that doesn't have the refusal scene that you're talking about, but you could expand that out if you wished. Again, you don't have to use a lectionary to do all this. You could simply just do the Thomas story as your preaching text, but then make these connections. Revelation 1, Revelation 19, maybe over in Daniel, and of course, Psalm 150, and you could really culminate. And I mean, if there's any week when you want to make sure that the full band comes back out, I know it's a common thing. It happens at my local church, but I've seen it at a lot of churches because you're, you're working with volunteers. You have the full band then you have the sermon and then, well, you don't want to make the full band have to come back up. You know, they, they have a lot to do and you never know where the sermon's going to go. So just the worship leader comes out on the piano. That's fine. I don't think anything's wrong with that, but not during Easter season, right? You got to get the drums and the bass. Everybody's got to come on back. The horns, if you, whatever you have instrument wise, this is a really good week to, to work with the worship team and really bring Psalm 150 as this response to God's great work. Because for us as Christians in the Easter season, or on any Sunday for that matter, the mighty deeds of Psalm 150 verse 2 is at its heart, Jesus' exodus, his resurrection from the dead, you know? And I would say it's okay. You're welcome to push back. We can sing Psalm 150 to Jesus uh, because yep. he is uh, He is Lord. Although I, this is a probably a, um, a somewhat tentative, uh, well, it's a debated point, but I, I do think that there were early Christians that blurred Jesus with Yahweh in the Old Testament. I think Paul probably, Paul, since he knows Hebrew, you know, he probably distinguishes Yahweh from Kurios. And that's why the language of Father is so important, I imagine, for Paul, which I'm not saying he's a full-blown Trinitarian, but I mean, there, that's the roots of that, right? But I do, um, I do wonder if if John, you know, we were talking about John eight fifty eight. If there is an allusion, I don't know what you think to the burning bush, you know, where you know Yahweh appears to Moses, you know, before Abraham came to be, I, I am, uh, Jesus being the I am, the Yahweh. Um, so anyway. I think so. Yeah, I think so, and I think you should lean in those more Johannine directions in the Easter season. That's a great time. You know, Christmas and Easter, those are great times to lean. You know, the Pauline way is really good in ordinary time uh, to be a little <laughs> more precise. And then the synoptic way fits Lent as we build up. You know, as you build sure. up to Christ's death, it's like, because what does he do? He performs miracles and they give glory to God. And Jesus isn't like, what about me? Give glory to me. You know, like that's not, sure. he's usually trying to silence them from that. You yes. Know? Um, it's somehow in the resurrection, something is either enacted or designated or revealed. There's lots of different ways to construct that depending what passages of scripture you're inter- reading at the time. The Johannine one is it would be revealed. Something's revealed that always already was. It's not like Jesus became God and Lord when Thomas figured it out. And the fun thing that Thomas gets, and this is a little shout out you can give to doubters in the audience, is even though Thomas was late to the party, his lips get to carry the the highest praise. Exalted. Yeah. Yeah. More exalted. Um, so it's not too late. Yeah. It's not too yeah. late. That's rich. 
Man, this is fun. Hey, thanks for talking, Ken. I had a blast. Any any last words you want to slip in under the wire before we uh, say our goodbyes? Oh, just an incredible psalm, and it'll sing. It'll worship. It'll uh, it'll preach. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, uh, Ken, for the time you gave. Thanks to all our listeners. We appreciate you so much, especially uh, when you get the word out about the show to others, uh, to your friends, uh, privately or through social media or however you get the word out. We appreciate it a ton. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without you guys. I say that every week, but I really, really mean it. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the music to the show. And uh, with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.